Welcome to Yes, X or No Audio. Stepping back from the G20, a wider survey of recent geopolitical events. 2022, November 21. The article is headlined with a map of the northeastern hemisphere, but extends southward to Indonesia and even northern Australia. On the map are highlighted Russia and NATO countries. Also highlighted are nations in which wars have been fought, in which the US was involved since the Second World War, or coups which occurred, which the USA was involved in creating. If you wish to understand more about the details of the map, please read the article. Uh, But that's the concept. The summary of it is that essentially Russia and China, to a degree, are ringed by all of this conflict, which has been created largely by the US since the Second World War. Introduction. This article examines the changing geopolitical landscape. It focuses on Russia's immediate or near neighbours and the BRICS and SCO organisations. Sorry, it got a little long, but as I've said before, there was quite a bit of history to wade through. The recent G20 meeting will provide some light into the geopolitical changes. The situation in Ukraine will be described, to get it out of the way, of greater interest are what is happening in nations which are closer aligned with the new multipolar groups represented by the BRICS and the SCO. Other provocations across Asia, Africa and recent responses in Latin America will receive brief attention in the summary. Ukraine. Another wonderful interview with Douglas McGregor has been published, see sources. Doug summarises the situation clearly. The Ukrainians are in trouble. The West cannot afford to continue to fund the government indefinitely. The Ukrainian military, brave though it may be, is facing serious difficulty. The USA has recently purchased 100,000 rounds of NATO-calibre artillery shells from South Korea. This informs us of their lack of production capacity. Russia has been striking Ukraine's weapons depots and repair workshops since the beginning of the special military operation. Now, led by General Surovikin, Russia is also targeting Ukrainian power infrastructure. This has horrible effects on the civilian population, but also seriously degrades the armed forces of Ukraine's mobility. Ukraine cannot rapidly replace large transformers to rectify this problem. As this newsletter has stated, territory is a static asset in war. It is mobile assets, soldiers, weaponry and transport which are valuable. The exceptions are locations which provide useful advantage to an occupying force, like high ground. These are relatively rare on the steppes of Ukraine. Russia has now twice traded territory to preserve its valuable assets, its soldiers and equipment. The original force of Russian and Donbass militia are now to be joined by a force of at least 150% of their past number. Russia is more than doubling her deployed forces. The McGregor interview is conducted by a Polish interviewer, publishing to a Polish audience. McGregor advises the Polish government and people that Poland does have an opportunity to play a leading role in this conflict. That is to lead negotiations to end it. G20. Readers or listeners who've been around a while will know that this author values opinion from certain types of sources on the topic of geopolitics. 
The first are retired diplomats or senior politicians. They benefit from their retirement. They are at liberty to speak the truth that they see. They have also worked in the upper echelons of power and understand the core dynamics. The second category is veteran journalists, especially those who've reported from conflict zones. Being shot at or hiding from artillery provides a clarity of vision. In considering the recent G20 meeting, I draw on two reports, one from each of these source types. M. K. Badra Kumar is a former Indian diplomat. Pepe Escobar is a veteran journalist who has specialised in Asia and especially Central Asia. The titles of their articles inform us well. MKB uses, quote, The G20 is dead, long live the G20, end quote. Escobar headlines with, quote, Goodbye G20, hello bricks plus, end quote. MKB notes that the G20 was created at the time of the global financial crisis in 2007. It is essentially an extension of the G7, which was the G8 until Russia got kicked out. He concludes his The G20 is dead with advice for his own country. Quote, India has a great opportunity to navigate the G20 in a new direction, but it requires profound shifts on India's part too, away from its US-centric foreign policies coupled with farsightedness and a bold vision to forge a cooperative relationship with China, jettisoning past phobias and discarding self-serving narratives and indeed, at the very least, avoiding any further descent into beggar-thy-neighbour policies, end quote. But Rakuma is echoing a part of the lexicon of the multipolar initiative. Let's drop this zero-sum game approach and look for policy approaches in which multiple parties benefit. One of Escobar's brilliant qualities as a journalist is that he can identify key moments which symbolise an event or sequence of events. He chooses the following for the G20 meeting. Quote, The three-hour, 30-minute-long face-to-face meeting between Chinese President Xi Jinping and his US counterpart Joe Biden, requested by the White House, took place at the Chinese delegation's residence in Bali and not at the G20 venue, end quote. From this factual, single sentence, much can be learned. The meeting was long. It was requested by the White House. It occurred not at the G20 venue, but at the Chinese delegation's residence. Thus, we conclude that the USA's executive had a series of topics which required the highest level of diplomacy. The Chinese were receptive and wished to host the discussion in a space where they felt secure from eavesdropping or other interference. Additionally, they would be able to cater the event, providing a comfortable, secure and welcoming environment and be able to observe their guests closely. The topics are fairly obvious. Ukraine, Taiwan, trade, military positioning, etc. Read the readouts from the links provided Chinese or USA governments to learn what they wish you to know. When Colonel McGregor speaks of China, his refrain is that they are interested in business and thus trade. Therefore, they do not want instability induced by colour revolutions or wars. This was a part of the message delivered by Xi Jinping to Joseph Biden. Pepe's commentary on the final declaration issued from the G20 meeting is of interest. Quote, 
It was up to this year's G20 host Indonesia and the next host India to exercise trademark Asian politeness and consensus building. Jakarta and New Delhi worked extremely hard to find wording that would be acceptable to both Moscow and Beijing. Call it the Global South effect. End quote. Escobar is highlighting the diplomatic efforts by Indonesia and India to achieve an outcome which balances interests. From this we learn that they are not cowed by the USA but are returning more to the non-aligned movement stance. They reject the Bush Jr. with us or against us narrative and wish to calm that type of rhetoric. In concluding his article, Escobar returns to BRICS and its expansion. Applications to join the cooperative of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa have come from Iran, Argentina, Algeria and Indonesia. Serious expressions of interest have come from Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Afghanistan. Iran's approval to join the other big international forum of the SCO alongside the other big players in Asia China, Russia, India, most of the stands, including Kazakhstan, has already been granted. Its formal announcement awaits next year's SEO Heads of Government meeting. China's Belt and Road Initiative is off and running, and the geopolitical organisations which support it, BRICS and the SEO, have an ever-expanding membership application list. Responses to the Emerging Alliances the changing landscape of geopolitical alliances is fundamentally destabilizing for the now failing hegemon, the USA. One of the lessons of history is that declining empires tend to perform rash acts to attempt to maintain their dominance rather than adapting carefully to the changing circumstance. Behind the foreign policy of the USA, groups like the Council on Foreign Relations have long been aware of this changing geopolitical structure and threat to USA hegemony. The BRI project was announced by Chinese President Xi in 2013 in Kazakhstan, Belarus. Now well buried in memory holes, a coup involving the USA and Ukraine against the government of Belarus was run in the spring of 2021. A bomb threat was issued against a Ryanair flight over Belarus. The plane was forced to land in accordance with the rules of the relevant international body for flight control. On board happened to be a political activist who was wanted in Belarus. The Western media went into overdrive. Two months later, we discovered the details. Moon of Alabama's work on the topic was particularly well researched. Around 10 articles were published. This was not a tour de force, but just good old detailed investigative journalism. Western commentators, particularly the Atlantic Council, declared that it was a Russian coup. This fits their narratives nicely but makes no sense at all. One can sense a little projection. Kazakhstan. We saw very early in 2022 the attempted coup in Kazakhstan as a classic colour revolution via the hijacking of legitimate protests over a sudden increase in fuel prices. This was primarily defeated by the CSTO, that's the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which means Russia. Kazakhstan has since maintained some independence with Prime Minister Kasim Yomat Tokayev 
disagreeing with Russian Federation President Vladimir Putin on occasion. Nonetheless, Kazakhstan is fundamentally joined at the hip with her neighbour Russia. She is also a fundamental node in the BRI initiative. China has more than 20 billion US dollars invested in more than 50 projects in Kazakhstan to solidify the Kazakh role in the BRI. Tokiev's recent statements that in Kazakhstan, quote, we simply have to pursue a multi-vector, as they say now, foreign policy, end quote. This statement is a direct rebuttal of recent warnings by EU chief diplomat Josef Borrell, following his culturally racist statements that Europe is a garden and the rest of the world is a jungle. His warning advised Central Asian republics to, quote, reject dependency on any single international partner, regardless of history or geography, end quote. It is in South Asia that we see more recent efforts by the USA and their partners, Reed Vassals, to destabilise and thus create friction for these growing alliances. The next case is that of Pakistan, which is a member of the SCO. Before moving on, all three of these mentioned nations, Belarus, Ukraine and Kazakhstan, are large, immediate neighbours of Russia with long cultural ties. Pakistan and cricket. Early this year, 2022, the USA essentially bribed a few members of the Pakistani parliament to pass a no-confidence vote in then-Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. Those who grew up outside of Britain and her former colonies may be unaware of Khan's background. He was born to a sufficiently wealthy family to fund him studying at Oxford, where he read philosophy, politics and economics. His great achievement before entering politics is that he is one of the greatest cricketers of all time. As an all-rounder, he excelled with his bowling and was a creditable batsman. He led the Pakistani cricket team on multiple occasions, including their only victory in the Cricket World Cup one-day format. An image is displayed of Imran Khan receiving his membership into the International Cricket Council's Hall of Fame. Cricket is among the most popular sports in Pakistan. Khan was a central figure in Pakistan, becoming a team to be reckoned with on the international cricket stage. Indeed, the Pakistanis invented a form of bowling known as reverse swing. Using this technique, Pakistani bowlers confounded batsmen for decades before the rest of the world understood what they were doing. One of the most alarming recent scandals in international cricket involved members of the Australian team modifying the ball to achieve exactly this ability of reverse swing. Imran Khan is revered for his cricketing achievements around the world and especially in Pakistan. One of the fun games that cricket followers like to play is forming a greatest of all time team by selecting cricketers from any nation or era and putting them all together. One name is always included in this team, Australia's Don Bradman. Imran Khan is very likely to be chosen too, not just for his skill, but the fact that he would create moments in a game where advantage is switched from the opposition to his side. He was literally a game changer. Before his political career, he attempted to serve his community and nation. 
he assisted in the establishment of cancer hospitals in his home region of Pakistan. These activities, along with his sporting career, explain his immense popularity in Pakistan. Following his ouster, he returned to Lahore and has led numerous political rallies attended by over a hundred thousand people. An image of one such rally is provided. He called for a march on Islamabad, Pakistan's capital, and has been joined by many hundreds of thousands. At a recent event, an assassination attempt failed to kill Khan, though one person died and numerous others, including Khan, were injured. I do not claim that the USA was behind this. What I do claim is that links between the Pakistani Intelligence Service, the ISI, and the CIA are long and deep. Khan's mission to provide Pakistan with a more independent foreign policy runs counter to a collection of vested interests, and the ISI is potentially one of them. Iran. The next destabilizing events on our radar are the protests in Iran following the death in custody of a young Iranian woman of Kurdish heritage. She was at a police station, though not in a cell. At a geopolitical level, Iran has been under threat from the USA ever since the 1979 revolution which removed the Shah, King, and his Savak, internal police, installed by the USA and UK following the coup in 1953 against Mohammad Mossadegh due to his attempt to nationalise Iranian oil. Iran, formerly Persia, is a regional power and has been for at least two millennia. Regional nations, which enjoy seeing other regional powers reduced, include Israel and perhaps Turkey too, though their targets and capabilities are limited by history, technology and religion. Middle Eastern politics are horribly complicated, both because of religious factionalism and because of the games played largely by Britain and France in the region following the discovery of oil. Later, the USA and Israel have been playing their games in the region too. One should not ignore other regional powers like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, though they have been well under the thumb of the USA since the removal of Abdul Nasser following the Suez Crisis and the establishment of the petrodollar. The current protests in Iran are largely occurring in areas with foreign backing, including the Kurds in the northwest. This is yet another political destabilization based upon the color revolution model, which we have seen played out again and again. This is not to say that the protesters don't have legitimate grievances. The color revolution tactic involves converting peaceful protest into violent protest, and this is what we have seen happening in Iran. Over 20 police officers have been killed. These seem not to have been mob violence, but targeted killings of police officers. An interview by Max Blumenthal from The Grey Zone with an erudite young Iranian woman provides a far deeper context to the protests than one can find in legacy media. See sources. The issue at hand is for the Iranian people to resolve. The elevation of peaceful protests to violence does not help. It actually hinders the protesters' efforts to achieve greater social freedom. Summary and other tensions. If one zooms out both geographically and temporally, one sees a series of destabilizing actions taken in countries in Asia who are part of this new collective to escape the unipolar hegemon. The events listed above 
are just a taste of the conflict being funded and created in Greater Asia. Others to be considered include the USA's continued occupation of parts of Iraq and Syria. The war in Yemen recently saw the beginnings of opportunities for peace, but conflict continues. Israel, with $4 billion US dollars of annual funding, is still repressing the native Palestinian population. Afghanistan continues to suffer. The USA stole $7 billion US dollars from its national coffers. The USA is about to deploy a fleet of drone boats, a hundred of them, into the Persian Gulf, which is obviously designed to counter Iran's fast, small military boats. The USA just ran more military exercises with South Korea, to which Caitlin Johnston's metaphor of self-licking boot seems apt. There are the AUKUS and Quad military alliances recently formed by the USA. A final mention needs to be made of conflicts being created or maintained in Africa and Latin America. The 30-year-long war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo rages on. Conflicts in the Horn of Africa from Ethiopia to Sudan continue. In Latin America, the USA has maintained an economic blockade on Cuba for 60 years. For the last 30, the UN General Assembly has passed a motion condemning the ongoing oppression of Cuba. The last vote was everyone against the USA except Israel, Ukrainian and some other lackey. That is, every other member of NATO except the USA against them. Venezuela has withstood the stupidity of the Guaido hoax. Bolivia has regained a national socialist government after the imposed Christian extremists were voted out. In the process, the organization of American states lost all credibility. Colombia has shrugged off the drug war occupation and, like Bolivia, has a more native and socialist government. Indeed, Colombia has recently re-established diplomatic relations with Venezuela. Their president declared the citizens of the two nations as, quote, one people, end quote. Mexico's AMLO snubbed the USA in a recent Conference of the Americas for not inviting Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela, amongst others. Argentina has applied to join the SCO and Lula has just returned to power in Brazil. The unipolar hegemonic moment has passed. New structures are being established. The era of pure bullying is sliding from view. The new theme is negotiation. Thanks for listening. Until next time.